Anyone remember what we were talking about sermon-wise? Romans, good guess. All right, yeah, that's a pretty easy one. The Bible, Jesus. Sounds like a squirrel. Okay, we're in Romans 14, and last week, because I said this would be such an easy chapter to read and go, I agree with it, I understand it, it's easy, I understand, sure, easy, done, and, and we just move on and nothing changes. But the reason chapter 14 is in chapter 14 is because it comes at the end of Romans, and Romans is the book that talks about salvation, talks about God, talks about our need of the Almighty. And so Paul has spent his entire life working out in real time, this is who God is. This is how God saves people. This is how God's still working in my messed up heart. And this is what I want the rest of the world and the rest of all humanity who would be born afterwards to know about salvation. Now he makes that case. This is where we've been spending a lot of time. But now we're in the practical section of the book. If this is true, if God did this, if we're all totally lost, hell-bound apart from God, we all rebel in our own creative ways, detached from God. It seems like he's not there. He doesn't care. But, and, and that's how it seems to us. If that's true, if there's a God who pursues us, who although he has to exact his justice for all the ways we have wronged one another, for to be, to be right, but yet loves us in a way that he pursues us so we wouldn't have to face that punishment, if we believe that, then what kind of people should we be if our lives are not our own? If God took the punishment that we deserved, if God gave us the righteousness that we do not deserve in order that now we can have a relationship with God, well, how do we have a relationship with God? It's pretty simple, and a large part of it has to do with how we relate to one another. And this is where it gets messy, and this is why we're spending two weeks here. Because I, I don't want to just talk about the, the, the what we do. I want to talk about why this is important, okay? Why this is such, such a big deal to God. And so that's really where we're coming down to. We're going to dig into the text. We're going to look, look at all of this. I'm going I'm to bring up a really horrible illustration to try and... Um, make this point a little more, more sharply. I remember a long time ago, uh, I was asked to lead a team. It was a, an outreach. It wasn't Russia. It was another country. And it was a team of international people I'd been working with, living with. I knew these people. I'd been with them for about three years at this time. And, and we'd lived together. We'd done life together. I, I knew their story more than just their name. And, and I was leading this trip, and we're going in uh, to this area that had really not had a lot of success with Christians. And the reason had been it was this team Teacher training college in, in the capital or near the capital of this um, country, and it was a large, famous teacher training college. Um, but it was just known; it was just pagan central. It was just party. It was like the ultimate party school in this country, and and the church hadn't been able to have any inroads. But they had these foreign mission groups that that were able to have some success. But they'd all ended up running away and and just just ignoring these people because it got too difficult. And, and so there was a lot of jaded attitudes in terms of Christ. And yeah, Christians are, as long as you do things their way, they're, they're fine. But as soon as you know, we ask them to do things our way, they run. And so we're going to be the different team. We're going to go in and show no matter what happens, we're going to be there. We're going to love people. We're going to speak the truth. <laughs> yeah, so naive. Anyway, what, what ended up happening was it was this cultural celebration where we would do cultural things from the different cultures we had represented. We had about 20 different nationalities, maybe a little less. And then they would do cultural stuff from, from their country. And so they were teaching us words. And I should have known this was going to go sideways with the words that they're, they're teaching. Kiss, hug, 
Get Lucky. This was long before Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Um, this, this was, you know, it, the words were kind of going down a certain certain pathway. And I'm like, huh, I wouldn't have picked those words, but whatever. You know, this, we're, we're, we're rolling with this. And so we've been praying this through. We're going to be here no matter what. Well, we did give a strong gospel presentation. And they said, great, we'd like to consider this. And now we're going to do what we love to do every Friday night. The doors close, the lights go down, the music's cranked up, all this cognac's brought out, all these prophylactics are brought out, and it's just party time. And we're just kind of in the middle of this going, what do we do? What do we do? Immediately, it was like, wow, I can understand where this would be a situation where a lot of people would like, wow, we're out of my wheelhouse, what, what, what happens? Well, with the particular team that we had, we had a whole spectrum of people from different life experience, from different churches, different styles, different customs. So we had about three people just went like this. <gasps> This was just so beyond their experience, they shut down, they literally just didn't know how to respond anyway, it was just beyond. And so, so I told somebody, okay, hey, why don't you just, let's get these people kind of out and away and we'll work and kind of, kind of pray with them. Um, I knew there was one guy who was just a party maniac. He had just come to Christ um, a little while ago, joined our team, and he'd come out of a, a very promiscuous lifestyle. And this is going to be a huge difficulty for him. And so I'd lost track of him and I'm like, oh no, I got, I got to go after this guy, he's going to... This is not a good situation, not a healthy situation. There were a bunch of people that had just gone out dancing every week, and, and this was no big deal for them. So I rounded up the group, and I said, okay, we're going to be here. Uh, anyone here stumbled so far? Everyone's cool? Okay, good. Okay, remember who you are. Remember why we're here. We're praying. This is an opportunity. Let's just dance, get funky, whatever, but not too funky, if you know what I mean. So we got a, a funk moratorium. And, um, and so, so we're there, we're dancing, we're talking with people, we're, we're doing the best we can. And I look out the window, and we're three stories up in this giant cultural hall, and my, my party buddy uh, did the right thing, because he knew if he was there five more seconds, he, he was just going to hop on the first person that was willing, and that's just how he'd lived his life. And sorry to be blunt, but that's exactly how he described it. So he's three stories up on the outside of this giant bay window, escaping. He'd, he'd crawled out through a window. This is the middle of winter. And he's outside just without a coat, just shimming across this thing. And I saw him. And I'm like, that's exactly what you needed to do. You Right on. Please, God, don't let him fall and die. It's going to be a really awkward conversation. And so he just, so he escaped. And so he, he did the right thing. We got some people out to the parking lot. We got people who were a little less stumbled. They're relating. So the head director of this program, who is one of the students, comes up to me and says sort of in broken English, Bill, I'm going to put on the red dress, and then we're going to do the dance. And I'm like, oh, hey, great, yeah, fine, fine. Because I'm, I'm thinking a hundred different things, and where is everybody? And, and all of a sudden, I'm about five minutes later, I'm going, exactly what dance did she have in mind? The dance. I, this, 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 okay, I, now, now things are starting to get a little crazy. And so she comes up, and she just wanted to do this kind of formal waltz thing. All right, cultural, fine, whatever. But then she says, hey, can you, can you come back here? I want to ask you some questions. Well, I'd been tracking 20 different people, and these people here, and these people are talking, and these people are praying, and this is all good. So I'm not even thinking. So I'm wandering back into the, the dorm areas of this uh, this. Uh, teacher training college, and um, I remember the, the local mission leaders saying, this is the worst place, this is just such a bad, Christians don't go here, and all that, and I'm just going, eh, I guess this is the place he was talking about. Again, I'm like operating, you know, 10 different planes here. So she leads me into her bedroom, I'm not thinking, shuts the door, I'm still not thinking, we sit down on the bed, and then all of a sudden it hits me, deja vu, you didn't come out of fraternity party lifestyle, so I'm like, I've seen this movie before, and right then it's like, oh, 
What an idiot. How could I just put myself in this situation? This is so bad. Uh, Everyone's all over the place. And it was just like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. So she sidles up right next to me. She's wearing this red dress. And and I'm just like, what an idiot. I set myself up so badly for the worst fall possible. She reaches her arm around me. And I'm just praying, oh God, oh God, oh God. She grabs a children's Bible opens it up and says, I got this children's Bible because it's the only Bible I was able to get, and I want to know about this Jesus person. Do you know this Jesus, and how could I know him? And I was just, okay, God, okay, that's an answer to prayer. That, that way beyond what I, I was, I was thinking of, you know, rapture, heart attack, Chinese river pirates kidnapping me, but this is even better. And so we were able to share the gospel. Two more people came in, and we got a Bible study going. And there was a Bible study established that the local church could come in and follow up, and it was established because some people were willing to put their particular things aside to reach out. Now, there was a whole lot of different Christians that were all there. There were some people it was absolutely right to crawl out a window in the middle of winter and shimmy three stories up outside to get away because that's where they were coming from. There were some people that needed to go (gasps) because this was just so far beyond anything. They had no context and we needed to get them out of there. And there were some people that were just, you know, just getting down with it and getting funky. Um, That wasn't me dancing, by the way. Um, and, And they were just able to really connect and relate and even in with my stupidity God was still able to redeem that and and this is the church in action where there's all sorts of things going on now I gave an example outside the church and where we can think oh I'll just pick and choose where I go and where I don't go based on how I read the Bible but the problems much more pronounced inside church with brothers and sisters in Christ with people that are calling upon the same God who should know better, why don't they do things the way I do them? Why don't they read the Bible the way I read it? And why are they always wrong? And it's, it's a burden being right all the time. It's just, but I'll, I'll bear it for you because I love you. Um, our intentional, intentional Unity with others speaks volumes about God's unity with man. People ask, show us the Father. They ask this when Jesus was there. In fact, one of his disciples asked Jesus, show us the Father. He's like, Um, lost and broken world wants to know, has God abandoned us? Has God left us in our own mess? Does he even care or is God close? Is he near? Is he doing something about it? And if so, how? And one of the greatest ways we can answer that question is how well we're able to come together and unify what would not be possible in just human terms. That the amount of unity that we can show a world that is predicated on divisions and compartmentalization and everyone's separate and I this and I that and we're just more and more self then we show there's a God who came near, a God who's doing it differently, a God who's going against the grain of our hearts and our our desire to pull away because it's too difficult or in our pain. And so how we relate to one another is directly related to how people see the reality of God in this world. And to the extent that, that we remain 
divided, that we keep church hopping when it's too difficult, that we're just gonna cut and run or we're gonna criticize others, or we're gonna snipe people in here, or we're gonna treat people differently. I will treat you this way, I will treat you that way. I know you, I don't know you, I like you, I don't like you, you're like me, you're not like me. To the extent that we do that just like the world does that, we're denying the existence of God. And so our intentional unity speaks volumes about God's unity with us. Has God come to earth? Has God become man? Have heaven and earth truly been united? Or are we all just on our own and we're just wishing for something better in the by and by? That's why chapter 14 is here, because it's the practical outworking. If we agree with chapters 1 to 8, if we want to cap out on Romans 8, it's a great place to be, but nothing's going to change in our life until we do Romans 14, because this is how God has made us. How we relate to one another is what we think of God, how we relate to him. If you don't love the person who's right in front of you, who you can see, don't kid yourself by saying you love God who you haven't seen. 1 John 1, 4. I hate that verse because it calls me up short every single time. And you know what the outworking of that is, right? Remember? Keep repeating it. I'm the chief repeater. I'm also the chief hypocrite, but I'm the chief, chief repeater. You cannot, you cannot love God any more than the person you love the least. The person that you have most mistreated, the person that you have loved the least, that is the high watermark for your actual love of God. Not what you think, not what other people have told you, not your performance, not how long you've been here, not how, how quick, you know, where you've come out of. That this is the one determinant. And so the, if we can work on the person we love the least and love them more, then that's actually raising the actual watermark of how much we love God. And that's not me saying it. That is God saying it straight up in his word. That's God demonstrating it straight up on the cross. And it, it's my prayer that I'm not insinuating myself in any way into this. Um, but this is God speaking to us. Okay, let's get into the text, break it down. Two things we're going to see. First thing is this. God is working on each of us individually from the start. Where we go in life is going to be very, very different culturally, experientially, worldview, technology, uh, just how we, how we relate to people, the language we speak, what we've learned growing up, our family of origin. Uh, were, was it a place where we could be free? Was it a place of a lot of unspoken rules? All of these things determine very radically our individuality. And God did that on purpose. He made us unique because he delights in that. We are necessarily irreplaceable in the kingdom because of the uniqueness that God's given us. So we're all starting from different places. But moreover, when we come to Christ, we're all coming from very, very, very different places. In our experience in our experience of God, in our experience of others, in how we see the world, in how much damage we've experienced from this world, and how much we've visited on others or had visited on us, all of these things determine the unique path that God has for us in drawing each of us individually towards him. So this is one perspective that Paul starts out upon to make a case for the next one. Okay, So he jumps in. This is, this is writing to a church with all sorts of different people in it just like us, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. What are disputable matters? Anything that's not indisputable. It's really easy. Sometimes these questions are super easy. They're all trick questions. Okay, what's indisputable? 
That which is in God's word. If it ain't in the Bible, drop it. Shut up about it. Find like-minded people who you just, just kick on talking about this and go nuts. But if it's not specifically in the Bible, if the church throughout history hasn't decidedly determined that this is it and not differed, then, then it's a disputable matter. And so if the church has been arguing with this throughout history, it's disputable. If the church has settled upon this uniformly across the board, it ain't because they're recognizing it's the word of God. And so that's a really, really, really good guide. Okay, I'll give you a horrible example right now. How many people have heard of the site Ashley Madison? Oh, come on, you can admit, you know what it is. I'm not saying you use it. I'm just saying you know about it. Okay, Ashley Madison is a site, uh, probably the most famous, and it's just, it's a messed up sign of our times, but it's, it's you, to belong to the site, and there's millions worldwide, you have to be married, and the purpose is to hook up anonymous affairs. And so it's a site dedicated for married people to commit adultery with other married people. And, and it's, it's just a monster hookup site, and this is worldwide. Millions and millions of people on there. Well, some knucklehead from Cornell, was running out of ideas for a doctoral project, probably, and, and wanted to find out, I wonder what the faith component is of the people that are on the site. And so did this massive, massive questionnaire, longitudinal study. 105,000 people responded, 60,000 of them from the United States. Okay? <laughs> this is so bad. Um, 23% of the respondents said that they were Catholic, 23% said that they were Protestant. But do you know what the number one self-selected, self-identified group was? Evangelical, born-again Christians, 25%. Seventh commandment is not a disputable matter, folks, at all. And whatever justification, games, needs, want, all of this, this is not a disputable matter. And yet the church is making it a disputable matter, Okay. 75% of the 105,000 people that responded self-identified as Christian. I pray regularly. I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And yet, but, and, I need, and, blah, 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 blah. So either way, we have to be careful with what we make a disputable matter and indisputable matter. It's just as deadly and caustic to take something that's clear in the word and say it's up for grabs as to take something that's not in the word and say, no, we all have to do this. And that's what the early church was wrestling with. And that's what we still wrestle with. Okay, so how do we find the balance between what what is the indisputable stuff and what are all the rest of the stuff? Because one person's indisputable matter is somebody else's option list. Okay, let's move on. We'll see where we're going. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them, emphasis both. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand, i.e., the weak, the strong, doesn't matter, they're both the Lord's servant. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. They're not here today. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special, God bless you for being here, does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives for ourselves alone, although we think we might. None of us dies for ourselves alone, although it seems we do. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, it's kind of your brackets. You're born, you die, right? Everything in between is assumed. So whether we live, whether we die, and everything else we do between that point, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He might be Lord over every aspect of our life, over every treatment of others, over every principal position we've taken, over every outworking of faith, every one another, every way we've treated every single person, that he might be the Lord over that. Jesus is my Lord and personal Savior is an American statement only, guys. It is. Because we're the only country in the world that has framed in our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed with certain inalienable rights by their creator. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, that's all over God's word. Liberty, absolutely. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Pursuit of happiness? It's hedonism. It's not in the Bible at all. We've enshrouded it. We've made it a value. We've made it a right. We've made it a thing. And so it's my personal savior to give me my personal pursuit of happiness. And so God, you're not coming through to me because I'm not happy. And we get disappointed with God and we really get disappointed with one another. And so Paul seeks to correct this. Okay, I I ask you to read through this so I'm not going to keep going back to the text. I'm, I'm hoping it's pretty familiar. Romans 14, some definitions. Okay, what Paul means when he talks about those who are strong in faith, okay? What do you think he means? This is the audience participation part of the. What do you think he means? The strong in faith. Well, if you think of someone who's strong in faith, what comes to mind? Pardon? You're sure? Okay, you're, you have an assurance? Certainty? Okay, that, that's good, but it can't be just that. Lots of people have been, been assured and wrong. Hitler, for example, was really committed to his mission, but probably the wrong one. Um, so you do, need to, you do need to know you can't be a double-souled person going both ways. So you want to be sure. That's important. What else? Good deeds? Okay, your, your life has to show you've you, you got you to walk what you talk. Okay, so there's got to be congruency in life. Absolutely. What else? Pardon? You what? You are established in what you believe. Yeah, yeah, there, there is a sense of consistency in the faith. These are all, 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 all necessary and good. Um, I add one more. Those who've moved beyond a concrete understanding of faith that relies on external distinctions, the secular and the sacred. Okay, if we're still making distinctions, this is worldly, this is godly, this is secular, this is sacred, this is of God and unto God and brownie points for God, and this is just of the world and wasted time. If we're still making those distinctions, we're still immature in our faith. And, and this is what Paul says very clearly, two chapters in 1 Corinthians, one chapter here, um, he, he, he beats this thing to death, okay? He whips this horse until it's glue and then keeps whipping it because it's that important for us to know that if we still make these distinctions, this is bad, this is good in and of itself, it's an immature faith. You've heard me talk about my kids at bedtime long ago. It's not so, it's a little different now. There's a lot more wrestling and violence, but um, when they were little kids, I was Jesus Christ on a popsicle stick to them 
during the daytime because dad's all fun and he's playtime and he's wonderful and he's great and dad's there and he's creative and making a mess and patient wife's cleaning it up and it's just it's all great with dad but bedtime I'm Satan incarnate because it's bedtime and I'm the buzzkill and it's just time to go to bed and you were so wonderful now they were immature and they couldn't separate and so as long as I was making them happy I was Jesus Christ and as soon as I was disappointing them I was Satan and so I'm all good or all bad and that's normal for a five-year-old but it's not normal for a 25-year-old, okay? And so as they're getting older, they're recognizing to my chagrin and to my relief that there's good and bad in dad. And, and, and God is doing a work in me, and it's a mixed bag, and hopefully I'm, I'm getting better. I'm growing in Christ. I'm looking more like him. And I hope that's what they can see, and, and they know the real story. And so as they mature, they no longer have these distinctions, Okay? The one who is weak is one that still puts too much emphasis on outside behavior, not enough emphasis on the inner working of the heart. Those who understand faith is a distinction, again, between sacred and secular, and then the world divides accordingly. The problem with that is we all divide the world differently, and that's where we get into these one another problems. And so those that seem most hardcore, actually, Paul is saying, are less mature. Those that are, I'm not going to do this, and I'm straight edge, and ah, just, nah, it's Jesus. Well, that's awesome. That's great passion, but that's immature because you are having a, a weaker view of the world than what God has. Jesus cuts right to the point when he puts it this way. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Real simple, real simple. What comes out of our mouth is how we treat one another. So we're only defiled in our treatment of one another, not in what we're doing to ourselves necessarily. Okay? Begins, first verse in this, accept the weak. Now, he's not just talking about the weak that I mentioned, those who are less mature in faith, those that are saying, hey, I came out of this experience. And that's okay. That's a natural and a good place to be. We just want to move beyond that. Anyone hear the name Augustine or Augustine? He was a theologian in the early church. He did some wonderful work in theology, and he did some horrible work in theology. Okay, the wonderful work he did was as he's maturing in Christ, he had a robust view of how God works in the world and the security we can have in him. Great stuff. But he was just, he came out of such a party lifestyle where he worshipped sex. He was, uh, he had an illegitimate child from a much older lady. Uh, he made his living writing erotic poetry. And so he's in the middle of writing this just horribly lewd, erotic um, limerick, probably. Probably from the Nantucket series, if you're familiar. And God spoke to him and just cut him to the core. And he's like, my Lord, my God. And, and he came to faith. But that area of his life, his sexuality remained immature. To where in his later writings, he would say, as a husband and wife are, are, are uh, celebrating the covenant of marriage physically, God has to leave the room because he's so grossed out. That was his theology because that was his experience and that's how he divided up the world. That is the main reason we have a celibate Catholic priesthood because of Augustine and because of his immaturity coming out of the party lifestyle. And he couldn't see, you know, this is messed up and bad, but not for the reasons that I'm making it. Because of how it denigrates the image of God in me. That's why it's messed up. Not because the world's divided up into this is always bad no matter what. Even sanctified in, in marriage by Christ. And, and this is always good no matter what. See, do you see the difference between the immature and the mature view? And God wants to bring us. So he talks about accept the weak. But when he says weak, it's, he's referring to all who are weak. 
This is God's heart. If we want to grow in Christ, we have to put ourselves in his place. God's heart is for the weak, the downcast, the marginalized, the voiceless, the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan. That is where God is. If you read anything of scripture, you see that he has a special place, that he is near those that have the least. The Beatitudes scream that those who are most happy, makarios, it's translated blessed, happy would probably be better. Those who are most engaged and pumped and blessed by God are the ones that have the least because they have the least amount of stuff to get in the way. They're stripped so they can feel the real need of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the downcast. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. There's less things to get in the way. And so God can do a work. And so he says, accept the weak. Consider the weak. Think about the weak because this is the, this is the closest group that God gets to. So when Christ says, come follow me, we got to go where he is. Consider the weak. Consider those not as engaged or as mature as you. And this is God's heart and this is where he's going. It's a disposition of the heart, not a set of instructions or kind of a a behavioral group dynamic in the church. So Paul lists two examples. He talks about people who eat meat and people who don't and people that consider one day more special and one day don't. So he's speaking to his group. He's speaking to the people that he has here. There were those that came out of a weak background or or the the pagan background and their experience with eating meat, there were no butcher shops. There there was no, you know... uh, meat section in the, in the deli. Uh, the only place to get meat was from the temple. And so they'd have a, the, the, temp, the, the festival of Serapis and they'd be pouring out wine and libations on the cow and they'd be praying demons into it and then they'd chop his head off and be drinking the blood and then carving him up and who gets the porterhouse. And that's, that's how people got meat. So if you wanted to get meat, you had to participate in some sense with this festival. And so the pagans who were all there, and, and you know Jesus got a hold of them, they're like, Whoa, anything to do with meat has got demons in it. And so I'm not even going to eat meat. And anybody who eats meat is going to put a demon in them. And so that's what a lot of people believed in the church. Well, Paul doesn't say, okay, Christians, we're all vegetarians now. But what he says is, if you be aware, know people, know where they are. And if this is going to be an issue for somebody, then don't eat meat in front of them. Eat meat when you're not around them. It's that simple. In other words, just because it's not an issue for you, don't assume it isn't an issue for someone else. Talks about uh, one day's more special than the other. Uh, there were certain pagan festivals that it was like, I don't know, let's use a modern example, October 31st. Not that church ever gets fangled over things. Um, October 31st. You know why October 31st is believed to be such a spooky time? It's called a liminal event. In, in, in Druidic mythology, this is when the spirit world is allegedly closest to the physical world. But it was because everybody was out celebrating, the church decided, we're going to make this All Saints Day. Why? Well, if pagans believe the spiritual world is closest to the physical world, we want to remind them that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living and not the God of the dead. And we're going to remember all the saints who've gone before because they are still around. They're still in the presence of Christ. They're still, you know, engaged in the kingdom. And so, so we, we want this holiday. But for those that are saying one day special, uh, it, people are freaking out. Because those that have come out of a pagan background, All Saints Day is suddenly, ooh, it's this liminal event, rather than we're reframing it for the church. 
Now, on the flip side of that, you had the strong who were actually behaving like the weak, those saved out of a Jewish background. From a Jewish background, uh, you could eat all sorts of meat as long as it wasn't on the hit list in the Bible. And so if it was, if it was any shellfish, you couldn't eat it. If it stopped being shellfish. Uh, if it was pork, you know, certain meats, camel humps, you just couldn't eat. Um, there's reasons for that. And so there were, there were pagans in the church just tucking into, you know, eating some pork rinds, um, watching the game, and the Jews were stumbling. And then there were Jews that were saying Saturday is the Sabbath. This is the holy day. The church decided to meet on Sunday, which is a work day. And that's, we've, we've continued in that tradition. And so the Jews, the Christians that came out of Judaism were stumbled because you guys are just treating the Sabbath Saturday as though it were just another day. And now Sunday suddenly is special. You see, people were all coming from different perspectives, but they're all trying to get to the same place. Next point. Hold that thought. We're all coming from different places and God's working on us individually. Second point. God is working on all of us collectively unto the end. We're all getting to the same place, Lord willing. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Nothing is sin in itself. But if anyone does regard something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. It is sin. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. And you can fill in with eat, with what you argue about, where you divide on, where, where, where you make a bigger deal, whatever it is. If you're taking a principled theological position, if you're taking a political position, if you're taking a whatever Okay, so it's not just a matter of eating and drinking. It's where we're saying this is a, an indisputable issue. Do not, by your whatever, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or sectarian theology or politics or opinions or, or music styles or what we drink or what we smoke or what we eat or anything else that's it's external. It, it isn't about that. What is the kingdom of God about? It's right here. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with any of these things. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Why do people abstain from things? Why do people see things as evil and wrong and I'm not going to do that? Because they want to please God. What's saying the ultimate position is to recognize as God does, nothing in itself is messed up. And so we can have a wider approach. Now, that's not to say everything. Okay, there's more to the story. We'll, we'll get there. Um, anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God receives and receives human approval. People recognize this is good. This makes sense. This is how we're made. And God's going, yeah, that's how I made you. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification, building one another up, supporting one another, encouraging one another. Edification, it's an edifice complex, just means you're building, you're making a building, you're building somebody up, strengthening them. Okay? So the big picture is that God just created the world and it's just a bunch of stuff. Music is just music. There's no satanic chord. C sharp minor is not a satanic chord, it just is. Mixolydian is not a satanic metal mode, it's just a mode. Um, music is music, food is food, clothes are clothes. Smokes are smokes, drinks are drinks. Fill in the blank. That's just what it is. The kingdom of God lies so much beyond that, but could be hindered right there if we're not careful for us or for others. 
See, the Jews coming out of slavery were in a local situation. And so we have the big picture of God in creation. Boom! God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And there was everything. Everything came into being from the direct creation of God. And God says, behold, it's awesome. It rocks. It's good. It's sweet. And then he created us and he said he'd double good. This is the best yet. And then we fell and the whole thing went into tailspin. But God in his love didn't abandon us. He entered into the very pain, the very hell we create. And as one of us took our place in all things in obedience and in taking the punishment. And so there's an intimacy and there's an engagement and there's coming into our weakness more than we could ever imagine. So there's the micro, there's the macro scale of God where he says everything's good. And within that, all people have a limited perspective. So the Jews coming out of slavery had a limited perspective. We have to read Leviticus and, and Exodus, especially, especially Leviticus and Numbers in light of the pagan culture around them. And so the Jews were slaves. They had known nothing other than the lash and crying out to God and then finally deliverance. They were vagabonds. They had plundered the Egyptians. They they misappropriated the gold for the golden calf. But really, other than that, they had nothing. The cultures around them were sexy and they were advanced and they had all the tech and all the toys and all the fashion. And they were being drawn in so many different ways. And so what God did in his word had said... These are indisputable matters. The temple prostitution and the degradation of people, that is horrible, that's an abomination. Offering kids to Moloch, that is absolutely the opposite of who I am. The way that people exploit and take lands and expand houses and do all these things at the expense of others, that's not what I'm about. And so God laid out the law, but he also recognized his people had limited perspective. They had blinders. They were little kids. Daddy's all good and all bad, and they needed help. So he wired 612 mitzvot, commandments, into his word to protect them. And he said, you know what? The pagans that are actually tor- torching their kids, they got started by gouging, you know, by doing tattoos, and, and they, they were shaving, you know, and doing other things, because that was the ritual center of power in their religion. I don't want you even playing with that and messing around, okay? There's nothing wrong with, with, with getting tatted up, or cutting your beard, or not having the dreidels, or, or the, you know, the locks, or, or all these other things. But I want you to take one step back from that because you're still little kids. You're coming out of slavery and you don't know. And I don't want you getting messed up. Don't eat these foods because they are, a sep- they are associated with pagan sacrifice. Don't go in for these practices. These practices aren't wrong, but they're also used for these evil things. And because you guys are kids, if you start messing around here, it's just a matter of time before you get here. So he treated them as little kids. And he said, I love you. Here, This, this is the stuff you need to know. And I want... I, We're going to put on some um, training wheels and we're going to take a step back so you can learn to trust me first and foremost and then we'll work on the rest. And so the laws were a tutor, were a nanny literally to lead us to Christ. This is Galatians 1. Okay, so all of the law was just basically how do we not get stuck in quicksand so we can be set free in Christ. Okay, and if we see the word in the law that way, there's there's a freedom to that rather than, than being enslaved. Peter had to learn this, this, this lesson. Um, he was on the roof. He, he's, he's, he's fasting. He's praying. And all of a sudden, he has his image of the sheet coming down. All the stuff he was told as a good Jewish boy never to eat. Chow down, dude. Tuck in there. Get some tapatio. Grab that llama and just go medieval on it. And, um, and he's like, may, Lord, may it never be. And he's saying, I, I sanctified everything. Go for it. Well, Peter got the lesson because just after the vision, the most famous pagan in the land... Uh, the first Marine, actually, Cornelius of the, of the um, Italian unit, wants audience with him to hear the gospel. 
Peter got this lesson. Because in the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's story, when he recounts Jesus' teaching on all foods, the verse that I just quoted, the, the Matthew version of it, it's not what goes in the mouth, but goes out that defiles you. Peter adds this. He says, and in doing this, Jesus pronounced that all foods are clean, comma, and that all people are clean. Okay, that was the lesson. That it wasn't having to divide people up. These are bad people. These are good people. These are the goy. These are the Jew. The, the, um, the, the, these are um, people going to hell. These are people going to heaven. These are people. Uh-uh. No distinctions whatsoever. You used to do this with food because food is food. Food's just food. No big deal. But for you Jews, because you were slaves, because you were immature, you had a weak faith initially, um, I put the training wheels on. But that was in order for you to see, you know, the issue really isn't about food. It's about a heart. It's about people. So when you can get that, go nuts. And that was the New Testament church. That was Pentecost. More on that later. And the same with us. See, the Jews had a limited perspective that was under this big picture. Every one of us individually has the same limited perspective. That God has the perspective, it's all good, I created it, nothing in and of itself is bad. But because of our individual backgrounds, were we extremely out of control with, with our bodies or, or, or with our livers or, or, or with any other part of us, then that's going to be a very different place from somebody who hasn't dealt with those issues, hasn't dealt with those violations and, and, and all of that. You know, did we grow up in a house that, that we could share and were free or we were repressed? Was it fair? Was it unfair? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it... All of these things are a limited perspective under the big picture. So all of us starts from a place of weakness. All of us, when we come to Christ, have our own grid, our own paint by number for the world. This is evil. This is good. But the goal of maturity that Paul's bringing us all to, or trying to in this, laying out the case, is that each of us should be letting go of these things so that we can see no person as unclean, so that we can be front and center, mission forward, same as Jesus had. See, here's the kick. You've probably seen this example before. We all start on the outside. God's on the inside. Okay, pure unity on the inside. All of us couldn't be more different from God and more different from one another as the spokes, the outer spokes of this wheel, right? But as each of us individually moves closer to Christ, closer to the center, so imagine just moving along the spokes of the wheel, outer to inner, guess what also happens? We all necessarily get closer to one another. Okay, let me say it the opposite way. If we do not, like opposing magnets, same magnets that oppose, if we do not, for whatever reason, are able to get closer to one another, are we able to get closer to God? No. Ain't going to happen. That's why Romans 14 comes after all the theology. If you believe the theology, if you want it operating in your life, this is how it happens. If this doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. Pretty simple. Kingdom of God is not how we look, what we wear, what we think, what we eat, what we drink. What is the kingdom of God about? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. None of that happens when we're making distinctions. None of that happens when we treat different people differently. The only way we have peace, the only way we have unity and joy in the spirit is everyone is regarded the same way as Christ. So regarding the weak... Regarding, which all of us are weak in some ways, right? All of us have blind spots. All of us have come from somewhere. All of us have liabilities. None of us has the full angle on the truth, right? So above the the umbrella of God, each of us has our own deal. 
regarding the weak, I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing's unclean in itself. Remember that. But if you regard something as unclean, then for you it's unclean. Drinking a beer, no big deal either way. If you're coming out of alcoholism, that's going to lead you right back where you were. So doing one is going to lead you right back here. It's going to be sin for you. Or maybe you've, you've seen it jack other people up. And, and in your, your mind you say, man, no good can come from this. And so even though the reality is it's just ethyl alcohol and water and some hops or whatever, you believe it to be wrong. If you do it, you are sinning now. It is now sin for you. So he says, be aware of your own grid. And you need to listen to that. Because if you're violating that, even though ultimately you're not violating God's word, now you are violating God's word because you believe it to be sin. So you need to be aware of where you are, and we start out there. Engage God where we actually believe, where we actually make judgments. Regarding others, the one, okay, it starts out the context, one who eats everything must not treat with contempt, we'll get to that. The one who does not eat everything, the one who's weaker, must not judge the one who does. For God's accepted them both, you and the other one. How about the strong? Okay, regarding yourself, whatever you believe about these things, hey, it's okay to, you know, I, I can have a beer, others can. I'm going to talk theology here. These are my political leanings. This is how, whatever it is, I don't care. Whatever the disputable matters are, keep these between yourself and God and I'd say like-minded people. Blessed is the one who doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. If you're set free by the Son, you are free indeed. Where the spirit of li- Christ is, there's the spirit of liberty. That's the hallmark of Christ. You are blessed, you are good. Rocking that. Don't, don't mess others up. But everything is lawful, not everything is beneficial. Okay, everything might be okay, I can do this, but you have to ask the question, is this helping me? Is this helping others? Know your individual background. Know where it's going to lead you. Not everything builds others up. And so this is, this is the hub around which Paul had already had to work this out in the church of Corinth, which was so divided, and he brings it up again. Another counterbalance. Live as free people. Don't, live your, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. In other words, although we are truly free to do pretty much anything, not, not condemned in Scripture... That's not the end of it. Because the goal isn't that we can just do whatever we want. The goal is that we can do everything that is going to actually be substantive of Christ in our lives and of others. That which is going to remain. That which is going to last. That which we're not going to look back and regret and go, that was just wasted. Or that was stupid. Or that was hurtful. Where you could say, no, I spent my life well with the things that really mattered as a free person. But what Peter's reminding, and remember, this is Peter here. What he's reminding is simply this. He says, um... I know I'm still sick, and I can even use the freedom I know in Christ as a mature believer to play games with God, to play games with others, and to try and get away with stuff. I'm not, but there's still that propensity in me. So even if you are mature and consider yourself as such, you can still slip back very easily. We need to be careful. And then finally, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or whatever, for your opinion, for you to be whatever. All food's clean. It's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So although whatever you might be doing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's your freedom. Paul says, look, you have to look at the effect on someone else. If it is causing anyone any issue, what's more important, your pleasure or the other person? Okay, this is the one another. We all have to give stuff up for everyone else. The weak people have to give up judging. The strong people have to give up exacting freedom at the expense of of others not along the way. And we all need to remember we are all weak in different areas. Can Can you guys see my blind spots? 
You probably can. Can I see them? I can't see my blind spots, but you can. Can you see your blind spots? No. Not even in a mirror, but others can. And so we absolutely need each other if we're all, any of us are going to grow beyond immaturity to maturity. It's so easy to pull ourselves, it's just too hard, and so I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. We stop growing in God. I'm going to close. I keep saying this, but I'm going to close with this. It comes down to theologian Dr. Phil. And he says this, and it applies to the church so well. And I'm, re- I'm using the word happy like Jesus used it at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those. Dr. Phil will 90% of the time say this. When somebody's confronted with the decisions that they're making and the direction that their life's going and where they really want to go. He says, you've got a choice. You can be right or you can be happy. But you can't be both. So if you're going to insist upon your rights and that you were right, you alone have the answer, everyone else is wrong and you're judged accordingly, you can be right. But you're not going to be happy, nor is anyone around you. You are not going to be blessed. You're not going to be growing in God. Or you can let go of your rights. You can let go of your opinion. You can let go of the disputable matters which separate. And you can be makarios. You can be blessed. You can connect to your need of God. You can connect to your need of God through one another. And everything is different. You see, when we only look at the external, we miss what God's doing in others. When we only look at the external, we miss what God is doing in us. And when we only look at the external, we miss God. We are going to celebrate communion. I quasi-apologize for the time. I'd like to invite the deacons forward. But there is no better mark of unity than around whom we unify, and that is Jesus Christ. And I've talked about division. I've talked about where we all are individually. But I would be remiss if we did not end on a foundation of that for whom we are here. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, unless you are Scandinavian and Pentecostal, you probably aren't aware that it is Pentecostal Sunday today. And so what is Pentecost? Pentecost was the celebration originally of first fruits. It was giving the very best to God. And in Jewish history, it then became Shavuot. It became the celebration of the giving of the word of God, giving of the Ten Commandments. And this was the huge festival that was happened, that, that happened. And this is the context through which God brought forth the promise of his spirit. And so he told his disciples last week, we looked at it. Remember, wait in the city until you are endued with power from on high so that you can be my witnesses. Okay, now all the people that had gathered in the city, they were gathering to worship God and they believed they were mature believers. They were celebrating the giving of the Ten Commandments, which divided the world up. They're us righteous Jews and they're all the godless pagans and the world divided up very, very easily. All these people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different situations were all gathered together for Pentecost and the disciples were expectantly waiting. What's the next step? Jesus Christ is defeated death. You've given us hope. You've given us a new heart. You've convinced us of this reality. What's the message? The Spirit of God fell upon them and they proclaimed the unifying good works of God to everyone. And so what Pentecost is, is God's Spirit going forth in every believer saying, 
all people equally stand at the foot of the cross on level ground. We all need Christ. We all need to know Him, to give our lives over to Him, to surrender absolutely everything. And I don't care whether you dance or don't dance, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, gay, straight, trans, inner, if whatever, whoever, anything, every, all humanity is at a level playing field at the foot of the cross. We need the saving work of Jesus Christ and there is none of our distinctions are going to save us or commend us to God. And that is the good news of Christ. Nothing we could do to deserve it and nothing even in our unfinished business, even in our rough edges to mess this up. We are secure in Christ even as we still get this wrong, even if we still hurt, even if we still need to ask forgiveness. And so we stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Symbolically, the, the, the bread, the juice, is just his body and blood given for us because he took our place. He took the punishment upon us that we deserve. I ask the deacons to please distribute the elements if we could hold on to these and we'll all partake together.